So Christmas is such a joyous time of year. Uh, I think for many of us, it is a favorite time of the year. For others, uh, not a pleasant time because of trauma and, and bad things that have happened in their lives. Oftentimes, the holidays can be very, very difficult. But as believers, followers of Jesus, Christmas is more than just the trappings and gifts and decorations and music and peppermint mochas. It's more than all that. Those are good. But Christmas is the time we celebrate God sending his son into the world. Jesus, the savior of the world. Emmanuel, God with us. But before we get there, church tradition invites us to pause and be still, to sit and reflect, to consider the darkness of a weary world, and to ponder the longing of God's people in the 400 silent years between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ. We call it Advent. As Donna's already mentioned, it means coming. It also means arrival and appearing. Reminds me that Joey and Molly just had their baby this week. Yes. We know what a miracle that baby is. His name is Avner Timshell. Avner is a form uh, of... of of Abraham, but also means future. And when you look at it in the Spanish, it's another synonym for Advent, coming. I thought how appropriate that he would be born on Friday. Advent, meaning arrival or appearing, and it certainly points to his first arrival when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but it also points to a second arrival when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, if you had eschatological sermon of the second coming of Christ four weeks before Christmas on your bingo card, you are the winner. Winner, winner, turkey dinner. No, no turkey, we were all sick of that. Uh, if you thought, this is a really good time to talk about the second coming of Christ, you would be right. It actually is the most appropriate time. And on this first Sunday of Advent, we are called to wake up, to awaken and be ready for his appearing, just as Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son myself, I don't know, Jesus said, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. The problem is, we have way too many fixated on figuring out the day and hour of his return, something he clearly says we cannot know, and not enough of us doing what is required, being on guard and staying alert, staying awake. And so the church, the the church universal is oftentimes a, a sloppy mixture of those trying to predict end time dates 
so as to escape the world's mess, and those that are sleepwalking through life, going through the motions, sitting in pews, living respectable lives, but lacking true spiritual vitality. God intends for his people to be something different than those two categories. And so Advent is here for us to wake us up, to call us out of our collective slumber, to call us to live awakened lives, alert and ready, engaged in his mission and eagerly looking for his return. And so we look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, which is the gospel reading for the first Sunday of Advent from the Revised Common Lectionary. I didn't pick this verse, it was picked for me. So keep that in mind as we get into it. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is the same parallel verse from the verse in Mark that I just read earlier. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I'd like for you to just take your imaginary seat buckle right now, pull it over your shoulder. Go ahead, pull it over, all right? Buckle in. All right, because here we go. I've never spoken on this before, but here we go. A lot of people think these verses are describing the rapture. A belief held by many that Christians will be secretly taken up from earth to heaven, leaving behind all those sinners out there, which will experience a great tribulation for seven years, with some of them becoming believers during that time. And then at that point, and only at that point, for this belief system, Jesus returns to defeat the Antichrist, to judge the nations, and to institute his millennial thousand-year reign. This pre-tribulation rapture is dramatically depicted in the series Left Behind. Some of you may have read those books. There were 16 volumes all in total, which sold over 80 million copies worldwide and led to four apocalyptic movies. Now, if you've been around church at all, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You've heard that term, 
uh, pre-tribulation rapture, or for all the cool people, pre-trib. That's what we call it, pre-trib. Pre-trib, pre-mill. That's all the cool kids say that. You've heard those things. Maybe you've been influenced by it. Maybe you even believe it. But what's interesting, to me at least, is that it's a rather new phenomena in church history. It doesn't come from thousands of years ago. It only was a belief system that has been introduced in the last 200 years. It started in 1830 by a leader of the Plymouth Brethren in Ireland, a man named John Nelson Darby. He formalized a system that he called dispensationalism. Ooh, there's another big word. And, and the cool kids just say the whole word, dispensationalism. It's not dispen. No, we don't do that. Dispensationalism, all right? And, and this belief system maintains that history, the history of the world, of mankind, is divided into seven ages or dispensations that history is divided into those where God acts towards humanity in different ways in the different ages. But what really made this premillennial view that Darby espoused different than a more historic premillennial view, which I don't have time to get into, was this secret rapture that he talked about that would happen years before the second coming of Christ. Darby's teaching spread throughout Europe in the 1800s in North America and was picked up and published in 1909 in the Schofield Reference Bible, which became a primary resource for many Protestants almost everywhere. In fact, I would dare say if you have a stack of Bibles at home, there's a good chance that one of them is a Schofield Bible. Uh, okay, amen. <laughs> I will lay my cards on the table with you this morning. And I'm just going to tell you, I am not a dispensationalist. And I do not hold to this view of a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture. Now, before you get up and walk out, I realize that a lot of people do. And I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm a lover, not a fighter. You didn't laugh about that. <laughs> I mean, I will fight if you want to, but I don't really want to. <clears throat> I don't want to try to pick apart and try to espouse. And, and we as a church community don't focus on these apocalyptic, um, eschatological themes quite a lot because there are a lot of differing views out there. And quite frankly, like I talked about when I did my series on the letters to the church from Revelation, I kind of feel that there's several things of each camp that I can take into my own belief system. And I'm not going to get into the dirt and weeds with people about making sure they believe it the way I do. I, as Bob Mumford said, am a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> but when I read this passage of scripture today, which was predetermined for me, remember? Seatbelts on. And I read it and I thought, 
a lot of people think this is talking about the rapture and I just don't believe it. it is. I just don't believe it is. And here's, I'm going to give my case for why I don't believe it is. <clears throat> I think Jesus is speaking specifically of his return, of his second appearing, of his coming. You know why I think that? Because four times in the verses we just read, he basically says that. He says, the coming of the son of man, not a secret rapture, the coming of the son of man. And if he doesn't use that phrase, it's one very close to it. And he does it four times in those nine verses. But beyond that, beyond that, Jesus gives context for his second coming when he said that it would be like the days of Noah. He gives a picture, he gives an example to give context for what he's saying. He said, it's like the days of Noah, where people were going about their business as usual. They were living their normal lives like no judgment was awaiting them. Look back at verse 38, if you still have your Bible or device open. Verse 38, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So here's the question for us. Who was it that was swept away in the days of Noah? Was it Noah and his family? Or was it all of those who would not heed their warning? It's pretty clear that the wicked were the ones swept away or taken away. And those chosen by God were the ones left behind. Oops. Jesus says, and so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he gives these examples. He says, two men will be in the field. Surely this is the rapture, right? Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken away. One will be left behind. So let me ask you the question again. Who was taken? And who was left behind? It doesn't specifically say. But I believe the most common sense, contextually sound answer is the believer is left behind. And the unbeliever is taken away. I believe, and I'm not trying to push it on you, but make a case for it. I believe that this is a picture of judgment, not escape. They are cast away from the presence of the Lord. This is supported when you go and read the other parallel verses to this in Luke's gospel. You see it in Matthew, you see it in, in, in Mark, as we read earlier, and now in Luke. In Luke, it indicates more clearly what's going to happen to those who are taken away. Verse 34 of Luke 17, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him... Where, Lord? As in, where are they being taken, Lord? 
And Jesus said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Luke shows us that those taken away aren't raptured to glory. They're delivered over to the death that awaits them. And looking back at Matthew 24, there are other things that Jesus says, but I, I think these verses and this understanding helps us see things in a different light. Matthew 24 and 25 is what's called the Olivet Discourse. And I don't want to bore you with wonky theology, but I will. And, and <laughs> yay, David says back there. Thank you. And, and in that discourse, it simply that means that he spoke these words on the, on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. And in that chapter of 24, there is a whole section before the portion we read where he's talking about the destruction and desolation of Jerusalem. Something he says that even those that were with him would see with their own eyes. And a lot of people mix all of these things up and they put them all in different buckets and different categories. And I'm just here to say to you, I can't fully give explanation to every piece, but I, I'm convinced that this chapter is talking about two things. The destruction of Jerusalem, which surely happened in, in 70 AD, but then also, which was certainly a historical event, we know it's in history, but also the future event when Jesus, the Son of Man, will come again. And nowhere in those verses do I see it talking about a rapture. And to conclude that the one going and the one leaving is the rapture, which, by the way, is the only one of two sections in the Bible, the other in 1 Thessalonians, where Darby bases his dispensational, premillennial, pre-trip, you got all that. I just don't think there's enough there. And if it's not in the Bible, maybe there's some things that I don't need to fully explain. And I think that's the problem, right? I think people theologians and leaders and Christians have tried to get it all in a nice, neat package so that we can understand it so we don't have to have faith to know that God's in charge of it all. That was a good time to say amen. So there are just some things we don't know, and that's okay. He does. We know he's coming back again, and we should be looking for that, staying awake and being on our guard. All right, I went to preaching now. All right. Back to chapter 24, because there's another section that I want to get to, Matthew 24, verse 45. You can unbuckle your seatbelt now. I think it's okay. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over this household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. This is operative for believers. Will God find you doing what he left you to do when he comes? That's the basis of being righteous in his eyes or not. That's the basis of whether he will see us as those that have been obedient and awake and ready for his return. So doing when he comes. Verse 47, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants 
wow, <laughs> so abrupt. He begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. This illustration, as he's talked about the days of Noah, and he's talked about the servant who's faithful, this illustration, he's talking about two contrasting servants. First, a faithful and wise servant who was found doing the master's work when the master returns. Nothing better. But then there is this wicked servant, as Jesus calls him. Wicked because he knows his master is going to return, but thinks he still has time to live carelessly and ruthlessly and it won't matter because the master delays. We all know people like this. We've come across people that seem like this. They feel like there's no consequence. There's no, um, there's no bad action regarding their choices. We understand that there are a lot of people out there in the world, but this man seems to be in the church. Which is a new twist to the story turning up the heat on all of us sitting in here. Notice he's called a servant. And he has fellow servants. And he even calls Jesus my master. What? He's what we might call a professing Christian. A church member. A good, upstanding Bible-believing Christian. He believes he's going to come back. He's his servant. He has fellow servants. He even calls him master. Yet he thinks he has delayed. It's a stark warning to those of us who see ourselves already a part of the household of faith. It's reasonable to think we'd hear Jesus warn those who don't believe. Surely, that, that makes sense to us. But now Jesus is warning those of us who do believe, and especially those who believe but assume they can live as if they don't believe, and that there will not be consequences. It shows that indifference is damnable. It shows that my indifference, he will judge. Jesus is coming. We must all repent and believe. We must live as faithful and wise servants, doing what the master gave us to do so that when he returns, he will be pleased. The apostle Paul gave a clear charge to the Christians in Rome to live like this. That while he says to them, that while they cannot know the time and hour of Jesus' return, still they do know that the time is now to wake up. He writes to them in Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. 
So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's time for God's people to wake up. To wake from our slumber. For his salvation is nearer to us today than when we first believed. The night is far gone for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Behold, the day is at hand, and he is the light of the world, and not only is he the light, but he looks at us and says, and you are the light of the world. So it's time to cast off works of darkness and despair, of poor choices and bad results. It's time to shed the darkness of your life and put on the armor of light. We should radiate in the midst of darkness. We should glisten and gleam when people see us. They should see the very glory of God shining from our faces. It's time that we stop looking and acting like the world and live like the servant that God has called us to be with the armor of light from head to toe. It's time to walk properly, not like people who stumble around in the darkness, but people who walk in the light. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I love what Joe said today about getting into the word and how that brought faith into his life. It's time for us to, like putting on a new suit of clothes, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the best suit of clothes you could ever wear. You look dapper in that suit of clothes. That's an old term, I know. You look uh, uh, fly. Did I do okay, Mimi? All right. My drip. Come on. Now, you know, you know. Yeah, I'm learning. As Mimi would say, my drip is the blood. And I love that. It is time to put on a new suit of armor, a new suit of clothes. And it is the very one who saved you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to engage in his mission. And not look for the escape route. But rather go out in love aggressively. For that is the work the master has given us to do. And as we do, we are to eagerly look for his appearing. For your salvation is closer today than the day that you believed. I realize all of this talk about the end times can be controversial, especially in certain circles. I trust that we have a spirit of grace and unity amongst us, that we can have differing views about these things and not get into heated arguments that divide us. I'm not... I honestly am not trying to bash one view over another. I'm not smart enough to do that. But I do think that we must be careful in how we approach 
Scripture. We must let his word form and shape our beliefs and not use his word to validate what we believe. There's a big difference. We cannot allow ourselves to fall prey to propping up a belief system and picking a few verses to support it. We must let his word, by being in it and his spirit residing in us, form and shape us into who he's called us to be. But in whatever way we explain what will happen when he returns, we must still live and work in this world, for we have been sent into the world, not of it, but sent into it to declare a message. And we are to be filled with hope, his eternal hope, as we look forward to his appearing, agreeing with the Apostle John, who wrote at the very end of the Bible, the last two verses of the book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, and that's Jesus, surely I am coming soon. And John responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Donna's going to come and share her thoughts and then we will pray for us. What I was hearing while Chris was talking was the word stewardship. This whole thing about being awake to God and living like we're awake, um, it's in line with so many things we've heard recently about about looking up, about the fact that God is serious, about living lives of integrity. Um, So I just want to read a small excerpt here about stewardship. Stewardship is the human side of receiving the Lordship of Christ. It is the process of integrating the gospel into every area of life. In a day when the world seems to have lost hope, the gospel is still good news. In lives desperately seeking understanding and hope, the gospel still brings the realist real. Where sin binds human hearts and lives, the gospel still has the power to shatter the shackles that chain the soul. And we are stewards of the good news. Paul states, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Yes. That's right. And to me, the message about being awake and alert for his return is living a life of stewardship, living a trustworthy life. Um, in this same uh, section that I was reading, it says that there are three ways that we steward, and I'm going to list these three ways and then pray for us. The first one is in our own walk with the Lord. As Jamie is famous for saying, we're never going to make more progress out there than we let God make in here. So our first stewardship is how are we relating to the Lord? The second one is how are we confronting 
the world and its attraction in us. This isn't applied to anybody else yet. How are we, how are we relating to the world and its attraction in a day-to-day -day way? And then the last one is how are we stewarding the gospel in all of our relationships? In the community, outside of the community, people who are being drawn. So three places of stewardship. Um, He says, for the gospel experienced leads to the gospel extended. If we're struggling to have grace out there, it's because we haven't fully let the grace do work in here. So, that's right. let's live awake. So we're going to pray, and uh, if the Lord is speaking to you today, would you just be open to how he would like to minister to you, what he's asking of you, what he's requiring of you in this moment? Um, Leaders will be here at the front as we're concluding and beginning to sing. If you'd like to respond to the Lord, have someone to stand and pray with you, they would be happy to do that. Home group leaders and other leaders of our church will be here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for calling to us out of our inactivity and our stupidity, as Judy said. Thank you that you are always saying, awake, O sleepers. Yes, Lord, you are. And we do want to live not just awake in this moment, but we want to live awakened. We want to be good stewards of the gospel, the mysteries of Jesus. So I ask, Father, that you would move with your Holy Spirit in our thoughts and in our hearts and that you would lay open to your inspection how we are stewarding our own walk with the Lord, how we are pushing against the tide of the prince of this world and how that is played out in worldly circumstances. And most and most importantly, Father, how we are relating to others. Yes, Lord those that you've called, those you are calling, and those who have yet to respond to your call. Father, I ask that you would impassion us. Yes, Lord. That in this season of Advent, yes. when we remember your heart for the whole world, that we would be compelled yes. to respond first to you, yes. and then with you going out into the world, into our place of business, into our homes, with our neighbors, with our children, with our friends. It's always a good place to sow the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and keep us awake so that we can be active and about our Father's business. Yes, Lord. Lord, we repent of arguing about things when what we should have been doing was examining our own hearts. We repent, Lord, for building systems that we tried to fit you into instead of realizing you invited us into life, into your way, into your truth, where your word would shape and form us more than we could force it into our system. We repent, Lord, where we have judged others that are out there as if they were the only problem that we face 
as if they were the outsiders and we had the inside scoop. We could avoid the judgment that's coming. We could, we could feel like we were special and chosen, but not be impassioned to go and share the same good news with those that are dying and lost. Forgive us, Lord, where we have built a case and not examined our own heart. Lord, we want to be those servants, not the wicked ones, but the good servants who are busy doing what you called us to do when you return. Those that have been faithful with what they've been given. Those that are using the talents and the ministries and the giftings that you've poured out. Lord, help us as a church community to be those that radiate the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the armor from head to toe, with the, with the Lord Jesus being our clothing, that we would walk in you. Help us, Lord, in this day and these days to be those kind of people, that kind of church. In the name we pray, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.